This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about Emirates. Uh, Their president has some choice words about the 5G snafu, uh, which has been obviously in the news cycle quite a bit here in the U.S., been quite a headache uh, getting that rolled out and figuring out what's safe and what's not. Uh, We'll talk about an F-35 that took a bird strike, had to land on its belly, and we'll definitely get into the Qatar Airways uh, Airbus dispute, which has only escalated recently. Uh, now that Airbus has canceled a long-standing order uh, for a different um, model of airplane. In our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about uh, Dufour. Their hybrid tilt wing uh, is boasting a 630-mile range, so we'll revisit them. We've talked about them in the past. We'll chat about Whisk Arrow, how they've gotten now $450 million investment from the Boeing company. Big piece of social proof. I'm sure that makes a lot of uh, investors real happy about that. And then we'll talk about Japan's AirX. They've ordered up to 50 EVTOLs from Ehang. Um, some again, further proof that maybe Ehang is getting pretty close to um, airworthy certification. So, Alan, let's start with Emirates. Obviously, the 5G situation I think is really I think it's strange for the the public because we don't really understand. You know, the, the airways we have all sorts of wireless and cell towers and all this stuff beaming, but um, this seems like it continues to befuddle some of the smartest people in the world, whether this is safe or it's not safe, it's going to cause an issue or it's not. Where are we right now? And, and why is the Emirates president um, saying this is such a, a huge screw up in the way this has been handled? Well, it, it it's a real interaction between the FAA and the FCC here in the States where the FAA highlighted that there's potential problems with radio altimeters and they went to the FCC and said, hey, everybody, we've got an issue here. We're not sure what's going to happen. We don't have any data uh, to support what uh, could happen to radio altimeters. The FCC said, ah, <laughs> just moved on. Uh, they, they did do a little things. Like they, they started turning down the power around airports. They tried to direct their antennas away from the airports. At least that's what the indications are. But the FAA put out an air wilderness directive that said, hey, there's a whole bunch of airplanes out there. We're not sure are safe to land in uh, uh, very um, uh, cloudy conditions or IMC conditions where you can't see the ground, basically, whether you have an auto land type situation where a radio altimeter is used to help guide the aircraft in. They, they said, you can't use it. And I, it, at first it was uh, Boeing then put out directives to operators saying some 777s, uh, you're not going to be able to use them in some airports. And they just kind of tumbled from there, and I'm sure the airlines were really shocked by that. Not that they haven't been following it, but that when Boeing starts putting out letters saying, hey, you can't fly our airplanes after a certain day, that's really concerning, right? Uh, because airlines are going to lose money, and it's a big hassle for them, and it's all preventable. And that's a good argument. Why are we having such an issue here in the U.S.? So there was a, a statement by AT&T who uh, they, along with Verizon, backed down recently um, as, after uh, Biden sort of uh, intervened. But AT&T, one of their statements was, 
you know, we are frustrated by the FAA's inability to do what nearly 40 countries have done, which is to safely deploy 5G technology without disrupting aviation services, and we urge it to do so in a timely manner. That seems, yeah, why, why is the U.S. struggling so much with this? That sounds like a lawyer writing that, you know, th th those kind of statements are just being a jerk. That has that's not going to move the situation along any better, right? I, I think there's a concern about the amount of power that they're putting out, uh, and the discussion point that I'm hearing a lot on some on the discussion boards is the U.S. has twice the power or more power than what they were using in Europe um, and some other places. So there's a concern about the amount of power, and the FAA has is it's super concerned about older radio equipment like a radio altimeter which hasn't been exposed to that particular set of frequencies, and they're just not sure how, what the response could be, and there is an indication that they could respond in a, in a bad manner. Peter Lemmy had a really interesting uh, look at some of these things. He's the, the, I guess, former Boeing engineer. He knows a lot about the systems on the airplanes, and I didn't realize he was describing how the radio altimeter is used in different systems, uh, in, in thrust reverse systems, landing gear, touchdown systems, braking systems, those kind of things. And I didn't realize the radio altimeter was used to that level on some larger aircraft, like the 787. On smaller aircraft, radio altimeter is just usually a way to gather how much height you have before you touch down. Not, it's not interacting with like the braking system or the, or the thrust reversers, uh, at least on airplanes I've ever designed. So there's, there's, it's deeper than that because we would just think it's just giving the pilot this nice little information. I'm 40 feet, 30 feet, 20 feet from the ground. But it may also be telling the aircraft that it is on the ground because it's a little more reliable than other ways of detecting you're on the ground. Does that does that make sense? So it's maybe a little bit more. Yeah. So maybe a little bit deeper than us uh, outsiders may realize. Well, we'll see how that continues to play out. I mean, I mean, Al, what, what's your prediction? Is this going to be done soon? Are we going to be through this or is this going to still be more months of turmoil about 5G? I think everything is as of right now, at least in the States, seems to be running. I, I haven't heard of any exclusions or um, I, I know I know that they asked the airlines to check it out and and to uh, limit their sort of auto land uh, approaches uh, at certain airports where this could be an issue. And maybe we just had decent weather and maybe we had avoided the situation to speak, but I'm not sure this is over yet. Uh, and weirdly enough, right, that, like you were saying, the, the the telecom companies are writing nasty letters to the FAA. That's not, that's not going to move it along, right? Uh, so, and it isn't like the FAA didn't tell everybody ahead of time to. I, I think they have been talking for a while because the FAA seems to be pretty proactive in this. So it's weird it has gotten to this point. Just totally weird. Well, moving on, uh, interesting story from South Korea a Lockheed Martin uh, F-35, which is, uh, you know, the South Korean Air Force bought. Uh, they selected them for their FX-3 uh, fighter program back in 2014. Uh, but recently they ha had an incident where I guess they took a bird strike. And which this is crazy. It says the pilot didn't eject, remain in the aircraft to land it, and all systems stopped working except for flight controls and the engine. Um, and I guess there's no, no injuries reported. Uh, but now they're grounding all their F-35s right now to investigate. Um, Alan, this sounds really out of the ordinary. <laughs> it is. Uh, obviously, ingesting a bird is a thing that happens. In fact, you can go on YouTube and you can watch video of uh, F-16s ingesting birds and uh, pilots having to eject in those situations. When you have a single, single inlet system like it's on the F-35 or the F-16, you shove some big object and they're like a bird and it gets ingested. You may not 
uh, have all aircraft systems working like you want to. You may not have the thrust that you want to keep flying. The odd thing here is that they had uh, flight controls still working, which would make sense, right? You'd have some backup means of maintaining flight controls, but they couldn't drop the landing gear. And that seems odd to me because most aircraft are designed to be able to gravity drop the gear. Uh, and it's almost like a mechanical thing where the, the gear kind of is heavy enough, it starts to fall, then the, the air drag on it sort of forces it down and locks it in place. So it is weird that the aircraft belly landed because that becomes super expensive. Not only do you have this engine repair you got to go do, now all the coatings, the stealthy coatings, I'm assuming South Korea has all the fancy stealthy coatings that we would have in the States, like all that just got scraped off and all the composite structures got really damaged on the bottom of the aircraft. You, you kind of wonder if that aircraft is not just scrap at this point. It, it may be. It may be, which is why they shut down all the other flights. Yeah, yeah, right? And that seems so painful that they're so expensive and well-made that just like one little incident, not that it's a little incident, but it doesn't seem like a gigantic incident, but the whole thing's just done. Of course, I, I get how everything today is made that way where sometimes you just can't go back in there and fix, I guess, the way things are bonded and welded and just the engineering is so tight and, and precise. It's just, I guess you can't just go back there and fix stuff and expect it to be right. But it's just so painful to think, oh, $50 million, how much... How much does F-35 cost? Oh, more than that. Uh, there's varying amounts that I've seen online. You know, it's one of the programs where the, the cost of the aircraft has gone up over time instead of down, like it's been predicted. So who knows what they actually paid for or did the U.S. subsidize the sale of it? Who knows? But uh, you can imagine, Dan, if you if you belly flopped onto a runway with a <laughs> that you just don't know what you don't know. There's going to be a lot of struck, likely to be a lot of structural damage inside of that aircraft. Uh, yeah. Ooh, not a good day. All right, moving on. Uh, so the fight between Airbus and Qatar Airways has escalated with Airbus recently canceling a contract for 50 A321s, which seemingly unrelated to the A350 issue that they're dealing with right now at the paint um, and the lightning protection. Um, Alan, you've been following this story really closely. I mean, what, what's the latest here? And is this just out of spite from Airbus? Well, we're definitely outside of normal bounds uh, in negotiations. So Qatar Airways put out a, a, a video late last week showing A350 paint damage. And the story I was getting was the paint on the airplane is original out of the factory in Toulouse and that there are some massive areas on the upper fuselage that I thought looked really off to me where the paint was like wrinkled, cracked. Uh, and there are other areas where in composite, in the composite world where paint pops off, like on fastener heads and those sort of things, which is really kind of normal. It's not, great, but it's not unheard of either. But on top of the fuselage, it was really uh, not like anything I've seen before. Like it had some significant manufacturing issue or process issue had happened. Like, uh, like the aircraft had been exposed to UV for a long time without paint on it, or it had some sort of chemical cleaning done to it and had damaged the composite surface before they painted it. Something like that has happened. Uh, and, and that it's affected a lot of those A350s, not at, not at just at Qatar, but it, it's, I think Delta has some too that are just like it. Uh, so it's a deeper issue. And 
but Qatar has been really aggressive on trying to reclaim the cost of that and and get get something negotiated. And Airbus has been at least to the outside world unwilling to negotiate. And now they canceled their A321 Neo order, which is probably the most um, uh, uh, successful aircraft going at the moment. They the 321 Neos are like super popular. Uh, and I, I, maybe Airbus just figured like, well, I, I got this A321 Neo order here. I could give those 50 aircraft to somebody else pretty easily. Uh, let's just do that and just see what Qatar does then. And, but that doesn't settle anything, right? It just sort of escalates it. Uh, so we've gotten out of the bounds of sort of, don't you think now we're just out of the bounds of normal negotiation? It seems like they just want to, when the lawsuit's done, just like never talk to each other again. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it's like a bad breakup. Taking steps now to do that. Like, yeah, we don't want to give you any more aircraft. When this is done in court, we're done forever. I mean, you don't think of big companies doing that, but I don't know. Maybe there are some big B2B relationships that just fall apart and can't, can or don't want to be repaired. I don't know. Well, yeah. And so this must have previous history, right? There's no way this issue just revolves around paint. There must be something that happened prior to this that would make Airbus skittish to, to work it out. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, you talk about, especially with client relationships, sometimes you have clients that you just have to fire, right? I mean, people talk about this now and again, where it's bringing down your company, if it's just making your employees miserable, if it's dragging out too many resources and just it's just not a good fit sometimes you know whether it's a lawyer or any other like client service just, hey we got sorry we can't continue to to represent you or to um provide you with the service that we provide and i mean i guess you could do that with airplanes too if, if the relationship is just really acrimonious which acrimony is at all-time high right now so i don't know i yeah it's it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out i mean do you think they're, it sounds like they're heading for a trial and neither is going to settle? No, I, yeah, I, it sounds like they're in court in the UK and they're not, neither side is going to settle in this. They're going to go for a while, it, especially since Airbus, I think once it got to the court, Airbus just, Airbus just said, hey, hey, we're done, right? We're, we're not, we're not even, if you want to go to the courts, awesome. Then we're done dealing with you and you can, we can work it out in the courts. Cause I, I think for, knowing large companies like this, when they get to the courtroom, they can drag this thing on for years, right? And, and uh, you know, Qatar knows that too, clearly. Uh, so, I mean, in this situation, weirdly enough, the customer doesn't have the leverage. It seems like the manufacturer has their leverage and they're using it. And you don't see that very often, but in this particular case, they're, they're, it's, it's being public. What I think would be helpful for Airbus is to get the PR up on their side a little bit. And I just haven't heard anything out of them yet, which is not helping their case because Qatar is just bludgeoning them, uh, cudgeling them with, with this, this airplane paint thing. And Airbus is just standing there taking it. And then that doesn't feel right to me. Airbus must uh, at some point say something positive here and try to move it along. All right, moving on to our EVTOL segment, we're going to start with uh, Do4 Aerospace today. So their Aero 3 EVTOL concept uh, is currently boasting a range of 630 miles, cruising speed of 215 miles per hour, um, and their full-scale prototype is supposedly going to be built this year. 
and flight testing by the end of 2022. So, um, Alan, you've talked about some of the challenges with tilt wings before, and we've talked about do four on the show in the past. Um, I mean, do you think this is going to come to fruition here in 2022? I mean, they're a reasonably well-established company and got a good track record. Um, do you see one of their aircraft being flown in 2022? Oh, well, I, I think that earlier models going to be, I think they called Aero 2 is supposed to be flying here pretty soon. Uh, but this larger aircraft, it's this uh, Aero 3, I think is what they call it, uh, where they're talking about going 600 plus miles carrying 1,600 pounds. That doesn't make any sense to me based on what we've seen from other EV tall companies like Joby. So Joby, Joby just recently uh, set, quote unquote, a, a speed record for uh, electric aircraft at like 200 knots, 205, something like that. It was empty. There's no nobody in it, right? So <laughs> it makes life a little bit easier. We don't have any weight in it. But they set that speed record and... Before saying, well, let's go back. So Joby has a range, has demonstrated a range around 125 miles, something like that. I think they did it recently, a, a longer flight test. So the numbers that DeFore is putting out are almost like turboprop numbers, like Jet A turboprop numbers in terms of the weight and and range. So it makes you wonder, like, how how is this thing powered? Because it doesn't seem like it would be a battery-powered aircraft to do those numbers because no one else on the planet is predicting those numbers. So either they've got some unique power plant situation where they're burning jet A to create electricity to make the thing go, or um, they've got some different approach to the design, which no one else has thought of before. It's what it feels like to me because I'm trying to relate these numbers to other aircraft I'm seeing. It doesn't quite make sense yet. So, uh, I think we just got to keep an eye on it. And, and as, as as you've seen over the last couple of weeks, there's been like this really, all of a sudden, there's been this big, maybe because COVID's over, there's been a big push to get back in this electric marketplace and everybody's trying to find their position, right? Uh, publicizing numbers at this point is meaningless. What only counts is what you can actually do. And, but it's all about fundraising, right? In order to run these companies, you need half a billion, billion dollars in cash to, to do this. And, the way you get investors is to have numbers that are that look better than everybody else's numbers. Whether you can do it or not is harder. Well, and will the wing, which is which is unique to their design, is that going to give them you know that much extra lift, where it's going to be that much less fuel consumption to get where they need to go? I mean, is that where this extra mileage and range is coming from? I don't think so. It has to be something with batteries, right? And I think aerodynamically we've pushed the boundaries, and if you look at all the different aircraft designs today, they're very similar because they're all designed by computers and wind tunnels. Uh, so they're going to be optimized as much as they humanly can be. Beyond that, it's just thrust and power, how much power you can put on the aircraft via battery packs or hydrogen or whatever else you want to come up with. It's just the amount of energy you can store on the aircraft is going to determine the range, how much it's going to lift and all those other things. So, um, you know, I, I thought I thought a couple of years ago, we kind of flattened out in terms of what the aircraft designs are going to look like, especially for these little part 23s, wing on the bottom, wing on the top, propeller on the front, pretty much what you were going to get. And now we've seen it just toss that all out and starting clean sheet again, which is bringing a whole new set of designs to the table to evaluate, which is great, right? I mean, you, you have a 
a new concept, a new approach. You've done some computational things. You've been on the wind tunnel. You think you got this grand new, grand new airplane design. Fantastic. But when it comes to a business, it only matters what you can prove. And getting an aircraft in, in the air is very difficult. One, getting it to meet the numbers that you predicted is has shown to be incredibly difficult. Even for existing aircraft companies, been around for 50 years, it's really hard to do. Well, speaking of companies that are getting closer, uh, Whisk Aero has just secured $450 million in funding from Boeing, uh, obviously a very big name and a very, a very big deal. So obviously Whisk and Archer were in a big lawsuit. I guess that's still pending, Alan. We haven't really heard much about it in about, what, six months? Uh, a couple of months ago, I think we they, they, they said that Archer did not infringe, but I'm not sure Whisk has let that go yet. All right. I, it may be still tumbling around. But it sounds like investors, obviously Boeing, uh, putting in a big cash infusion. Not overly concerned, I guess, about the the long term effects of that. Obviously, if you're on the other side of it, Archer, you know, being sued, then perhaps that might be a little trickier, where people are maybe worried about the outcome in the long term. But I mean, what does this mean? Obviously, a lot of the big players have been slow. I mean, like Toyota put a lot of money into Joby. Uh, was it early last year? Now Boeing's put a lot of money here into Whisk. Is everyone just sort of like picking their horses now as it get, it's getting a little bit closer and technology is getting a little more fleshed out? Does that seem like what's happening? Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. The The big players don't want to uh, invest their own engineering staff and time and manufacturing into these projects because Boeing had their own development uh company in C in St. Louis that was developing like an EV tall type aircraft and they shut it down about two years ago. You see the same thing in Embraer, right? The Embraer's got this create this little subsidiary sort of thing to grow out and develop uh, EV tall. And and Boeing has now done the same thing like Toyota did really uh, to, to create a subsidiary. Uh, and this is not set up the same way because it sounds like Boeing has just made an investment. So they're going to be a partial owner. I, mean, I, I, I haven't even seen how much ownership they have for putting in $450 million. So it's got to be close to half at least, <laughs> they would think. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Whisk has been flying that aircraft around for a while, and they have a lot of patents based on it. So they do have intellectual property, which may may offset the the, the risk here, the downside risk for Boeing. Uh, but the uh, you know, I think the, what Boeing and you know who else is doing this is Kitty Hawk with their heavy side. So you got two players right now, Whisk and Kitty Hawk, that are really saying the future is autonomous and probably autonomous cargo. And Boeing's made a killing for years on freighter aircraft, 777 freighter, 67 freighter, uh, are really popular airplanes. 747 freighters have been popular for a long time. So is this just an evolutionary move by Boeing to say, hey, moving freight is really important to us and autonomous has huge advantages. I don't have to have a pilot who gets tired or is limited on, on how much they can fly. I can fly cargo around on these electric airplanes from place to place to place that that has a potential where joby is trying to sell uber whisk may be trying to sell to a company like fedex or amazon and which is what beta is trying to do right beta is trying to do something very similar with the amazon connection there so is boeing just really saying right now the future is autonomous autonomous cargo 
that's where the future is because they're not really investing in Uber, right? Type lift surfaces. They're, they're investing in moving large amounts of quantity of cargo around from place to place uh, electrically. That's $450 million worth of a question mark. I, I'm not certain there's an answer to that yet because there's there's no, we're not allowed to go fly those airplanes like that autonomously. This is not a thing in the United States, except in maybe in inside of a particular state. I think North Carolina does it. I think they're doing it in Tennessee and Memphis. FedEx is doing it a little bit with much, much, much smaller vehicles. But don't, Dan, do you see how this sort of, that's a huge bet. That's a half a billion dollars, right? That's a huge bet. It's a lot of money. Yeah, I, I'm still... I can't really see the picture of the cargo thing because I just feel like these are so small still that it's a kind of tiny amount of cargo for a really expensive vehicle. Um, but obviously you've got to start somewhere. So maybe there's just a, Hey, we start here and then we scale up as battery technology increases over the next, you know, that's going to battery technologies continue to move quickly, but it just seems like with the increasing demands of cargo in the, in the world, these are small. These are not big aircraft, you know, and you got to ask yourself, what's what's the value in a one or two million dollar aircraft versus a thirty thousand dollar Sprinter van that can fit more in it? Probably, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that's still fleshed out or not not yet fleshed out. That's a very good point. I, I, the, the aircraft only gets you so far. At some point, you're going to need that Sprinter van to actually make the delivery still. And maybe that's still in play. I, it's hard saying. But it's somebody convinced Boeing it's worth a half a billion dollars. Pretty good job, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to see what that. And again, I am certainly I have no background on logistics, so I don't know. But you just you'd seem you'd think there'd need to be a really large cargo thing to kind of drop short term or short range packages from you know one city to the next, like from New York to Long Island or Long Island to New York or you know, these like one or two hour flights where they can just drop a ton of stuff and then get it the last mile via, you know, vehicles via, um, you know, obviously electric vans is going to be the future. They're already, you know, getting ordered and getting uh, integrated now, but you know, from, from airport to the, the, the van hub, that seems like that, that last little segment where maybe something like this could work, but still this just seems like a product, a kind of tiny amount of cargo, but yeah. We'll, we'll see. It's it's hard to know where where all this is going, and I think they probably, with their bets, are saying we don't know yet either. Let's just kind of see, and we'll see what happens and what the market will bear. I guess. Yeah, big gamble, really is. So last on the list today, uh, Japan's AirX has ordered up to fifty units of the EH two sixteen from Ehang. Um, Alan, you know, Ehang had some trouble last year. They got a lot of really bad PR uh, from that um, expose. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. And uh, it seems like they've rebounded by just kind of keeping their heads down and doing the work. Um, and they continue to be in the press. So they Obviously, we talked about their their 5G EVTL center. And now they've got a, you know, again, the more orders you can get, the more that's other people sniffing around and saying, hey, this looks this looks up to snuff. We're more interested. So, I mean, is this going to continue to get them closer um, certification. I mean, it sounds like this really legitimizes what they're doing, even to a, a further extent. Yeah, isn't this odd? Uh, because China and Japan have always not been the best of friends <laughs> over time, and 
even if Ehang can get the Chinese certification authority to hang a airworthiness certificate on on the design, I'm not sure the Japanese uh, certification authority will accept it. And it, it, it's very similar to like when Airbus builds their next Airbus airplane, they go through a certification process with EASA, which is based in Europe, and then that gets handed over to the FAA, and the FAA, quote-unquote, validates the certification, and then the aircraft's allowed to go fly in the United States. That's how the process works. So it's sort of by agreement between countries that I'm going to let you do the certification work, and I'm going to accept it for the most part. I'll review it, but I'm really not going to get too deep into it. You guys are going to do all the hard work. We're just going to oversee it. All right. So that same situation is happening now between China and Japan. Neither one of them have a lot of certification experience. Japan has been, I'd say, has had more, more recently because of the Mitsubishi efforts. But to say that Ehang is going to get Chinese airworthiness approval and that's going to transfer over to Japan is a big stretch. It, maybe they can pull it off in some limited fashion because it sounds like it's like a touristy thing. So they operate reservation platforms. So they have a lot of different helicopter sightseeing routes and helicopter charters. Like you said, a lot of tourism and stuff like that. So this makes sense. We talked about this with uh, that Australian company about, you know, how kind of have the, the puddle jumper kind of thing. So, yeah, this definitely makes sense. But like you said, that could be a really big hurdle for uh, Japan accepting the Chinese certification. So if, say they didn't, then what happens next? They can't fly the aircraft. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They wouldn't be able to buy the aircraft because they couldn't get it into the country to fly it. I mean, they could, I guess you could import it, but they couldn't get it off the ground. And the, the tourist part of this, which is what Yehang is doing over in China right now, is sounds like they're doing a lot of tourist flights. Uh, in the United States, just as a reference point, uh, there's been a lot of FA oversight of tourist flights. You don't, not a lot that long ago, we ran into sort of a difficult period of uh, around the Grand Canyon and other places where tourist flights were not deemed really particularly safe. There's there's problems there. So it's and the FA really stepped in and, and tried to straighten that whole situation out. So it's not like uh, well, you know, they're just tourists. <laughs> We can put tourists in this autonomous thing and, well, you know, if they crash, uh, it's not a big deal. No, <laughs> totally not. It will be a really big deal. Uh, and and that's why the certification authorities are, are going to be really cautious about it because it'll stain an entire industry for a long time. And if so if you want to take that next step of autonomous tourism flights, sounds cool could be really interesting. You want to make sure there's some safeguards in place and that what you're putting out in service has uh, the infrastructure to support it and can remain airworthy throughout its lifetime. And I'm not sure any any aircraft company, forget about Ehang for a minute. I don't think any aircraft electric aircraft company is there yet. It takes a lot to support an aircraft. It does in the field. It takes a lot more than you would think. And that's why a lot of aircraft companies fail right there. Yeah, like you said, the uh, the early accidents in this industry with EV2Ls could be a death sentence to any any company or even just the entire industry. Like you said, just because fear, you know, panic could really spread. Oh, don't don't do that! Don't go on those sightseeing tours. I knew, you know, John Smith. He went with his family, and 
you know, they crashed. And yeah, that's enough for a lot of people. Like, yeah, well, we won't do that. Well, in today's, and Dan, and I think in today's world, because everybody has a phone, can you imagine if there were to be an accident, it's going to be with an iPhone recorded, right? And it's going to be instantaneously everywhere. Uh, we're still talking about the crazy Hindenburg, which happened, what, in 1930s, late 20s, early 30s, right? And just because we have film of that and radio recordings of it, it it's never left the populace. Everybody knows about that. Crazily enough, it would just actually stop the progress of hydrogen forever for all, going on almost 100 years. Well, an electric aircraft with a bunch of iPhone tourists having an accident is really going to hurt the industry for a long time. And that's not good. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Struck. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, be sure to leave a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Share the show with a friend. And we'll see you here next week on the Struck Airspace Engineering Podcast. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.